Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Loving Jesus, I thank you for the privilege of young people and I thank you for the joy that they are in our midst, their vitality and their, in many ways, their sense of wonder that, uh, if we're honest, as, as adults, we lose that sense of wonder sometimes over the years. But Lord, may, may we ever recapture and be reminded that we don't know everything there is to know about you. And when we embrace wonder a little bit more, we discover a little bit more of your love and just the sheer magnitude of all that you have done and and are continuing to do in the world. And Lord, as we look into your scriptures this morning, may you open our hearts and our minds to receive what you've got for us today. May the words of my mouth and the notes on my page and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are working our way at the moment through a series, series on the book of Romans. And as we look at this passage for this morning, I'm going to put this just to the side. I'm not used to standing behind anything like that. I wonder in your life and your experience, what do you look to to claim your credibility as a person? Because we all use something as a measure or as a, as a benchmark from which to claim our credibility and our integrity in the world. Well, and I wonder, what do you use? Do you use your um, status as a Christian or do you use your, the fact that you, you might be a teacher or had been a teacher or were you a, a, a lecturer or something like that? Well, you're a pastor. I'm a pastor. I like to think that the title pastor gives me a level of implicit integrity. Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? I'm responsible for leading a church community in the faith with spiritual authority week after week after week. I get the privilege of you sitting here and, t- and listening to me preach and expound the scriptures for 30 to 40 minutes every single week. Most weeks. Is that what gives me integrity? Is that what gives me credibility in the world? And the answer is, is no. Because the problem is that whatever it is that we would seek to appeal to for our, our, our integrity, our credibility in the world as far as status is concerned, only gets us as far as the people that have failed to live up to it, right? I'm a, for those of you who might know that I'm a, I'm a chaplain in the, for the South Australia Police down at Elizabeth Station, and, and I chat with them every week about the different things that they're journeying with, the things that they struggle with. But one of the biggest things that's uh, facing, the, um, facing police officers in the era of the world is their credibility, their integrity. And from, for those of us that grew up, I don't know about you, but for me, police were to be revered and feared in the sense that they held a level of credibility that meant they got to be judge 
in many ways through the, the moments in time. Obviously, there was legislation and, and law and courts and things like that, but police held a status in our community, did they not? Do they not? For many of us, they still do. But that's not true for everybody. And one of the biggest challenges facing police at the moment is YouTube, video streaming, all the different ways that the realities of the world out of context get projected and transmitted to the world, and all that needs to happen is a snapshot of something becomes the global narrative that paints the brush for everybody. Well, all we need to do is look, you can look across the world. We look to racial problems over in the States. We look to the racial problems here as just simple examples of some people not doing the right thing. And what ends up happening is everyone is painted with the same brush. If I were to get real, pastors don't have a flawless record across the world, do we? And all it takes is one or two. And what's the term? One bad apple spoils the whole barrel. And whilst in recent years that gets taken out of context, what it actually means, and if you've ever worked in fruit and veg, I have, one rotten apple in the barrel makes, spoils the whole lot. Like it just, the, the plague spreads across it. One thing ends up tainting the whole thing. And so that's, that's the reality of, sadly, when we look to our credibility as a part of what we do or a status that we hold. And, and it's that that we actually encounter when we look at the text this morning. We've got here a group of people, a nation, Israel, God's chosen people. And as God's chosen people, they walked around in the first century and, the, and the, plenty of the years before it with a certain status. We were the people that God was going to use to bless the whole world. That was the promise after all. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. And so what we read in this passage is a, is a scathing critique by the Apostle Paul, someone who was a Jew, or in his life and in his earthly ministry, but realized that Jesus was the Messiah. So he persecuted the church, the early followers of Jesus as a Jew, and a Jewish Pharisee. He became a follower of Jesus and so speaks with extraordinary integrity, I think, and credibility about this idea of not being able to hold on to that which you hold to be true, that which you would claim as credibility. And so before we jump into me explaining this and how it all fits together, I want to just recap a little bit of where we've been in this series. We're in this series called Romans, which is I've entitled The Power of Grace. Because Romans, and the reason I think that this is significant, Romans has been changing people since it was written. It was one of the most influential letters of the early church. It was the letter that was, that was written and, writ, and read out to the most powerful capital, or the, the capital of the Roman Empire, at the center of power in that part of the world. And it's been changing people ever since. It's, it was a, it's been a catalytic part of the Reformation, a tradition that we hold, a catalytic part of the form of Methodism, the tradition that we are a part of, and it continues to change us. And so we're studying our way right through it to see what it is God might do to change us in this season of the world. And I fundamentally believe that it is the greatest book 
or greatest piece of writing to exist in the world, and it is the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel, what Jesus has done and why it matters. And so I believe. Remember I started this year talking about growing deeper as a community? I think this would help to take us there. Because when we get this, we get what Jesus has done. It changes everything. And if I'm honest, if we believe in Jesus, but our life doesn't look any different to our neighbors and everyone else who doesn't, then what's the point? I believe there's more. And so Paul has three purposes in this whole letter. He's clarifying the good news about Jesus. What is it? He unifies a divided church. We could use a bit of that in this era, that's for sure. And he proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God can be trusted. And Paul takes us right back to the beginning and breaks down step by step. And my hope is that through this whole journey, we might discover something of God's radical love for us. But as we jump into this passage for this morning, as I said, it's, the background is the credibility of the Jewish nation, who were called to be God's light to the world. They were going to be the ones that were going to bring the good news. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're not familiar with the whole church thing, then this is interesting to know that God chose a specific nation of people, the nation of Israel, through which he would save the world, to put the world back to the way it was meant to be. That's what salvation means, putting things back together. It's a healing term. And this is the way God started the process of renewing the world. But the problem that happened, and the problem we encounter in the text, is that the Jewish nation used that status as God's chosen nation to assume that they were superior to everyone around them. The attitude that we get, the tone of Paul is actually a tone of, of irony. It's a, it's a tone of, of, um, of a special type of rhetoric that the Jewish, the Jewish um, the Pharisees and teachers used to reveal the truth about someone by making kind of a series of ironic statements. And, so, and Paul, in this passage, tears those assumptions apart for the Jewish nation. Because what he does is he reveals that when one thing is broken, all is broken. When there is one bad apple in the mix, the whole barrel, the whole nation is broken. They can't hold. If one person is doing the wrong thing, then their status as a nation isn't perfect. So therefore, how can their status be the thing that they hold on to to be saved? And so in this passage, there's three things that I want to visit if we've got time. If we don't, I'll skip one. We'll see how we go. The first one that I want to explore is the failure of religion. Paul paints a picture so clearly that within the context of the Jewish nation in the first century, but it's as true for us today, religion fails to take us where we need to go in getting right with God. And I wonder, has that been your experience? But before I jump into that, The three things I'd hope to cover is the failure of religion, the beauty and terrifying reality of the law, and the wonderful gift of a transformed heart. That's where I want to take us today. So, the failure of religion. Paul paints a picture for us of these Jewish leaders that had taken it upon themselves to be the teachers of this church. And if you're not familiar with the context, you've got the church in Rome is, is, is made up of Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jewish, both Christians. 
And they're trying to figure out how to worship together with one another. And the Jews got kicked out of Rome for a while and then they get brought back again. It's a complicated thing. But regardless, the Jews still feel like they're right. They still feel like they've got the authority to teach everyone else because they are sons of Abraham. They're part of the original promise. But Paul begins by accusing them. He, he says, so just out of curiosity, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the Lord to boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're the guide for the blind, a light to the dark, an instructor of the foolish, even you think you're qualified to teach little children because you have the Lord, just because you're the, you're the caretakers of it as the Jewish nation. Why is it then that you who teach don't teach yourself? And he goes on to accuse them that there are some among you he does it in a rhetoric way, but it's an accusation of saying there's some among you that steal, there's some among you that, that don't do the right thing, there's some among you that are carrying on in inappropriate ways. And if we, we, if we flick back to the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2, particularly, or the end of chapter 1, Emily did a, a pretty extraordinary job of preaching such a hard passage, which basically... Paul gives a list of all the sorts of things that the Jewish nation were getting up to. Gossip, slander, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, evil, disobeying their parents, having no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, shameful acts with one another, etc. The, the list goes on. He paints a picture and says, this is not true of all of you, but it's at least true of some of you, which means your credibility as a nation is dead. There's nothing you can use to claim it. And so Paul begins by painting a sobering picture that religion has failed and continues to fail. Because the reality is that wherever a gathering of people that claim to be moral or claim to be religious exists, there are people who are not doing those things. We believe in a God that teaches us not to gossip, right? Have you ever spoken about someone behind their back or prayed for them with someone else? We proclaim something, we say we believe something and we don't always get it right. We don't always get it right. We say that we don't lie, except when it's not that big of a deal. We say that we don't steal, except when it's a church pen that you slip into your handbag. We say that we don't covet what others have until we notice the pizza oven that the neighbor's getting installed and suddenly we take a trip to Bunnings. <laughs> we say we don't covet but we see the new car of the person down the street and we start realizing that the one that we've got that works perfectly well is just looking a little bit dated. And we don't put our hope in our wealth except when things start getting tight and we stop being generous. It's not all the time but it's at least once, and all it takes is once, all it takes is once to make us hypocritical, make us to be people that don't live out what we say we believe. And friends, if you and I are meant to live out faith as a way of getting in with God, if adherence to a set of rules and adherence to a set of laws is the standard God gives us, that's what religion teaches, 
If that's the standard, we're done. We fail. We've got nothing left to claim before God. And Paul says that's true of the the nation of Israel, and it's as true, I believe, for the church today, that we as Christians, we have no credibility before the world and before God, because we don't live what we proclaim all the time. Because when you break the law, there aren't levels of breaking it, are there? You either do something that's against the law or consistent with the law, right? It's not a, it's not a maybe or it might be. No, it's either it's a yes or it's a no. You've either broken the law or you haven't. You're either speeding or you're not. There's no margin. It's not 60 plus 10% and then you get caught speeding. No, no, you do 61. That's against the law. And then with the, the advisory signs, they're not suggestion signs, it's a speed limit. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? So in the same way, God's law, the Ten Commandments, if you want to call it that, is a standard. And when you break it, you're done. You break it once, we're done. And so Paul goes to extraordinary lengths to paint the picture that religion has failed. Not all the time, but just enough. But then he continues on by painting a second picture. He says, well, the Jew, for the, you, as the Jewish nation, you've got nothing to hold on to for your credibility. So you can't hold on to it. But then he goes on and continues to say, but, but the law isn't a isn't a bad thing. Just because you can't live up to it doesn't mean the law is a bad thing. God gave it to you for a good purpose. He gave it to you for a good purpose. And one of the things that you and I need to realize and be reminded of is that whilst we can't live up to the standard that God sets for us in our life. None of us can be that perfect. We don't need to resent. We don't need to feel bad. We don't need to worry about necessarily in an overbearing, in a shameful way, the law, because what Paul does for us is he paints a picture of the terrible beauty of the law. And I say terrible because there's a a part of it that ought terrify us. Because the law is the standard that we need to live in order to be good enough for God. That's what he said. But there's, a ter- there's an extraordinary beauty about the law because it paints a wonderful picture of something extraordinary. And there's two things to consider about this terrible beauty of the law. I know this is a lot of content, but we're getting through it, okay? Aren't we? Have I lost anyone yet? Not yet. There's two things we've got to consider about the terrible beauty of the law that Paul talks about. The first thing is that he says that the law is less about actions and more about the heart. That the law in itself is actually less about what we do and it's more interested in who we are. Now You might never have heard that before because... Because the Ten Commandments are about doing, or particularly not doing, certain things. 
But that's not actually the heart of the law. Last week we read earlier in chapter 2 that Paul calls out those who cast judgment on others. And he says, you religious people are doing the very same things, as I said before, evil and greed and depravity, all that sort of stuff. But Paul does something significant in that and what Ken preached about last week, about the calling not to judge. He does something significant that we need to pay attention to. And the thing is that if you look at that list, I'll read, I'll give you an example, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, insolence, arrogance, boasting, senselessness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. I wonder how many of that list are actions and how many of those are attitudes of the heart. Go back and read that list in your own time. Have a look at it and have a think about it. Because there is, in the, in the list that Paul chose to illustrate, less of that list is about doing and more of it is about being, about who we are, about how we see the world, about the attitudes of our heart. And if that's the case, why is Paul talking about the law? Well, that's because the point of the law is not simply about our surface behaviors. The law is about painting a picture of the kind of beautiful character that we are called to have. That was its purpose. It wasn't just a standard. It paints a picture of a beautiful character, a type of behavior that we are called to have, a type of person that gives glory and honor to God. It's not about behavior. It's about the heart underneath it. And this is not the first time we've seen someone do this. Jesus did this. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read in in, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus stands up on a mountain or sits on a rock or something, and he gives this sermon. And what does he do? He takes an element of the law and he expounds it. But it doesn't seem like he does it in a fair way. Have you read any of them? He says, you, so you have read or you have heard it said that you shall not murder. But I say to you, any one of you that even looks at another person in a hateful way, that the word there is, is, is um, looks at them as though they are nothing, then you have committed murder in your heart. You, you heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at someone else lustfully, Jesus, that doesn't seem fair. But he says, no, no, I, it's as if you have sinned and broken the law. It's, it's as if you have. If you, and so suddenly, we're not talking about actions, we're talking about attitudes of the heart. And that, that's not fair. It doesn't seem fair. It goes from physical actions to issues of the heart. And why does he do that? Why, why does he make that connection? Well, I've got to tell you, what, what's required for you to make the choice to murder somebody, for me to make the choice to murder somebody? 
bit of hatred, a bit of an assessment in our heart that they're worth nothing, that their life is worth nothing? What does it take for me to steal your stuff? It takes a disposition of the heart that what you have is not worth you having. That you don't really need it. That I'm worth more than you are. I believe what Paul and what Jesus address in this moment as they paint the picture of the law is they address the seeds that if planted and watered grow up to be the actions that break the law. The actions. So, Hatred and dismissal of a person's humanity when left to be watered and cultivated by the narratives of our world starts to look like murder and starts to look like genocide and starts to look like all the things that devalue humanity. Do you see how it's connected? None of the things that we do, we do without something in our heart changing. And so Paul and Jesus paint this picture. And they're going after, they say that the law matters because we're going after your heart. And that leaves us with a problem because to live that way is impossible. It's an impossible standard. And it doesn't seem fair. But Paul goes on to say, and this is an important thing to think about, that we expect everyone else to live that way. Have you ever thought about this? We move through the world in a certain way. And whilst we, we know that we struggle to live up to certain standards, we might lustfully look at someone sometimes, we might covet something, we might have a level of hatred or dismissal for someone's humanity or whatever that looks like. But we actually expect everyone else not to, be, not to behave that way. You never thought about it sometimes, maybe. But it's true. Is that we give ourselves excuses for mistakes, but we expect everyone else to adhere to a standard of behavior. We expect that everyone around us won't hold resentment towards us after we've apologized, right? We expect everyone to never be indifferent towards the needs of the world, particularly if they're our needs. We expect other people to be generous and willing to share with people around them, especially if they, get, if they can share the chocolate with us. We expect other people to be grateful when we give them things, right? All of that is part of it. All of that is all the underpinnings that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what's Paul's point? is that we, re, we get really good at demanding certain behaviors of others and rarely do we hold ourselves to the same standard. And when we do that, what does that make us? Hypocrites. And Paul says, you stand condemned because of that and that alone. And that's how it all fits together when we, don't un, when, when, when we encounter people and he goes on to say... and. and Ken picked up a bit this last week. This is all going to fit together, I promise. 
This is how someone who is not a follower of Jesus, who's never heard the law, who doesn't understand what God's standard is, that is how they can still stand condemned before God. Because scriptures teach us that it is our own standard that condemns us. That when we move around in the world expecting a certain level of behavior from everyone else and we don't live that way ourselves, we condemn ourselves. How exciting. Welcome to church. Are you inspired? But that's the reality. That's the terrible reality of the law. No one in the history of the world is able to stand up on judgment day. Because we're not even going to be able to stand before our own words. Before, it's almost as if we have a, a tape recorder strapped to our back. And whether we ever hear about God, about religion, about anything like that. If we, God will pull that tape recorder off the back and he'll show it to us and say, you don't even have to worry about my standard, let's hear yours. None of us can hold up to that. And therefore, we're lost. And so the question becomes, if that's where we are, where's the hope? What have we got left? Is there any hope? Well, I'm glad you asked. Of course there is. Because <laughs> that'd be a depressing place to leave a sermon. Of course there is hope. The failure of religion because of the terrible beauty and reality of the law means now at the very end of all of it, we have but one option. We need a renewed heart. We need someone to do something about our heart because we stand condemned by it. It's a beautiful picture of the type of person we're meant to be, but we, we can't get there, which means we need someone to do something about it. And so we find the wonderful reality that someone did do something about it. And that's where we get to the most uncomfortable passage that you can ever ask a young man in church to read about. I think circumcision is mentioned 12 times in like five verses. Now, if you're not familiar with circumcision, Google it. You can do it right now if you want, and that'll give you a perfect picture, if you dare, of exactly what I'm talking about. But they've got to ask the question, we talk about a regenerated heart, we're talking about no hope in the face of a, a sense of hopelessness, and Paul brings up circumcision. Why would he do that? It doesn't seem like it's connected. What, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. When God entered into a relationship with Abraham, when he chose a people to bless through which he would bless the world, that was the first time that God showed up and said to a man and his family, I want to have a personal relationship with you. I want to have a covenant. I want to make a promise, a connection with you. As a sign of that relationship, he says to Abraham, I want you to be circumcised. Strange request. Why would you do that? But what was circumcision? Circumcision is a covenant. Circumcision is a promise. When, 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 Abraham, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, 
The promise is, if you live this way, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cut off. In the ancient world, and I didn't know this, in the ancient world, when someone made a covenant, you enacted the curse that was to come upon you if you didn't live that out. So when you made a promise, sometimes they would sprinkle dust on the head and, and, and it would be a, I, am, I will be as the dust if I do not live up to my side of this bargain. They would, might cut an animal in two as a sacrifice and say, and essentially walking through it saying, I will be as this dissected, completely destroyed if I do not live up to the promise. Circumcision. I will be cut off from, just as you said I would, if I do not live up to the bargain. That's where this circumcision thing comes from. Why that? I don't know, you can ask God. Could have cut off his finger or something, but, you know, that was the choice. If you walk blamelessly before me, if you follow my covenant, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will cut you off, and you will be cut off from me. And so the question becomes, did Abraham live up to the covenant? No. Did his son Isaac? No. Did Jacob? No. Did any of the church fathers? No. No one has been able to live up to this covenant. Has anyone ever walked blamelessly before God? No. It's not a trick question. So how are we even here? How did we get here? Well, we fast forward to Colossians chapter 2 really quickly. And the Apostle Paul writes this. He writes in... I'll just read it from my notes. It's easier. In Him, you, that is the church, the gathering of people, followers of Jesus, were also circumcised. There it is, our word. With a circumcision that wasn't performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off, cut off when you were circumcised by Christ. But it's not a physical circumcision. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Well, so what's Paul saying? Why, why circumcision? Why is this significant? Firstly, On the cross, when Jesus is hanging there, what does he say? My Lord, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my Lord, my Lord, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? In a moment in time, Jesus is cut off from the Father. For the first time, he is cut off from his father through the death on the cross. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus received the punishment that circumcision warranted. 
On the cross, Jesus received the punishment of the covenant not being lived out. He was cut off from the Father. He received the punishment, the curse that we and all of creation deserved. Because, and because of what he has done, we don't stand in judgment. Because we can't stand in the face of the judgment. We can't stand in the face of the law. We've got nothing. We've already covered that. So why does Paul bring up circumcision? Well, he brings it up because he says, Jesus took on that curse for you. And so he circumcised, he was circumcised from God in a sense, cut off from God for you. But it doesn't just say, secondly, that Jesus was circumcised on the cross. It says, in him you were circumcised. Not a circumcision with hands, because the Gentiles weren't circumcised. That was a Jewish thing, not a Gentile thing. So how does it apply to everybody? He says, well, it's not a physical thing. He says, he's saying, you have a new heart. You have a new life. Why? Because you are now circumcised with Christ. You take on that which he did for you. What does it mean? It means that you get to stand with him in a new way. And when we read the law properly, when we see what Paul was talking about, when we understand what Jesus was talking about on the Sermon on the Mount, it's not merely a list of rules to be obeyed, which seem impossible because they are. It's a mosaic of characteristics, is what it points to. A mosaic of characteristics of love, of peace, of generosity, of integrity, of goodness. And when we put all those things together, it creates a picture of a person, and that person is Jesus the Christ. The law is meant to paint a picture of the perfect person, and that person is Jesus. It's not just a list of rules. It points to the only perfect person. It's describing Jesus. So, friends, religion crushes us because it's failed. You can't live up to that standard. And the law feels like a burden because we can't live up to the standard. But instead of being crushed by the rules of religion, look at them and see who they're meant to point to. They point to the person of Jesus. All the rules, all the law, everything points to Jesus as the one who was worthy, the only one who could save us. And the good news of the gospel is that when we believe, when we trust, when we put our hope in Jesus above anything else in this life, He offers to save us, all of us, from our sins. And the punishment we deserve is transferred to Him. He is cut off on our behalf. And all of His obedience, all of His beauty, all of His life, and the rewards that that deserves get transferred 
to us. And when we get this, when we really understand this gift, something changes in our heart. A circumcised heart is a strange metaphor. I wouldn't have chosen it. But what it describes and what you can find in a stack of places throughout Scripture, and I want to read this so I get it right, is that our hearts of stone begin to, to be transformed into hearts of flesh. That's what it's talking about. We begin through Jesus to see and understand the world the way God does. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 12 too, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, when he says, then you will know and understand the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You'll be transformed, renewed, have a new heart. So where does this land for you? Have you been crushed by the weight of religion? Have you been living your life guilty and broken by the fact that it's just too hard? And maybe your journey of faith has been one where you haven't ever been willing to trust the church because I don't have the integrity to tell me what to do. Or maybe for you it's just been that you just, something inside you feels like you're never good enough. You never live up to the ways that you expect everyone else to live. There's something in there that just leaves you empty. The terrible beauty of the law. So has religion failed you? Has the law left you guilty, shameful? Well, friends, let's allow them to point to the one that saves us from all of that. The one that, calls, that says, well, you don't need to live without hope anymore because I've set you free. I've set you free and no one else can take that away from you. Through seeing and understanding the significance of what Jesus has done for you. Not just knowing it, but understanding it. I believe that has the power to transform your heart. So that you can understand and desire to live out the good things that God has in store for you. And what you find is that through a transformed heart, we start to live out things like love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And Paul says, by the way, against those things there is no law. Why? Because those things put together paint a picture of Jesus. And that's who we're called to be like. So where does this sit for you? I invite you to reflect on it, understand it, and be freed by it. Let's pray together. Loving God, I thank you. What a, what a passage, what a truth. Lord, help us to know and understand that there's no hope in just living the right ways. But there's no shame in the law that's been written over our life because we are set free by you. 
And Lord, it is not about what we do with our hands as much as it is about the disposition of our heart. Lord, help us to get that right first and we will discover that by your faithfulness, everything else flows from it. The life you call us to is not about us striving. It is about us being transformed. Thank you, Jesus, that you did it all for us. Help us to live the freedom you gave your life to give us. In your name we pray. Amen.